Powerful song and great words to bring us into Holy Week here as we prepare for that in these coming days. Well, I would ask you again to open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is the last chapter of the books of Samuel and the last chapter of David's life here in these books that we're going to see today. Uh, like I, I think I mentioned last week, we've been in First and Second Samuel in different seasons of the years for three years now. So this has been quite, quite a journey through these couple of books over the last few years. And next week, we're actually going to be picking back up in the Gospel of Luke. So join us for that in the middle of the Gospel, well, getting towards the end of the Gospel of Luke. Um, so join us then. As you're turning to 2 Samuel 24, I'll remind you that 2020 was a census year, right? We, we conducted a census in our nation. Did you fill yours out? Anybody who filled out their census information this year? A good number of you, okay. Um, I did. Uh, I went online. I filled out the information for my family. Uh, so I, I fulfilled my civic obligation there to, to be counted Although I, I just I can't get away from the fact that filling out a census actually has plenty of political overtones to it, doesn't it? I mean, the data collected from the census is going to be used by politicians, sometimes for their own agendas, uh, some legitimate, some not so much. In fact, the, the census website actually says this, quote, the 2020 census will inform hundreds of billions in federal funding and provide data that will impact communities for the next decade. And again, some of that impact will be beneficial and some of it will be the result of people using that information, that data, for their own ends as a political tool. But in the last chapter of 2 Samuel, King David takes a census. He conducts a census of his people. But that's not all that's happening. There's something else going on too. It's not just about counting the people. And this census ends up being the last big blunder of his life and his kingdom, which we've seen a few of those over the last couple of years of reading through these books. But this is kind of the last one. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 24. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. Now, right away, man, there's a difficult question that comes up in this text because it says that God is angry at Israel, right? So he incites David against them. And the way he incites David against them is to motivate David to want to take a census which will be sinful, it will be wrong for David to do that, and then God will punish Israel as a result of his anger toward them. And we're left asking, well, why would God do that? Why would God tell David to go and do something sinful so that God would be justifiably angry with his people? Well, there's a couple of answers to that question. The first is that God allowed Satan, potentially, to take advantage of David's pride. If you read the parallel account of this chapter in the books of Chronicles, you will find out that that's very much what is said there, is that Satan seems to be taking advantage of David's pride, and so he gets him to do this census, which he knows is going to anger God. Or another option is that God is only allowing David to do something he wanted to do anyway. So he's using David's sin as an, an occasion for a just judgment against Israel. But it also seems weird that 
taking a census would be sinful. I mean, like I already mentioned, there's a census conducted in the United States every 10 years, and you all just admitted to me that you participated in it, so are we sinful? No. And we know this from the Bible because there are numerous times in Scripture where censuses are taken, and they're never described as sinful. In fact, there's even a book of the Bible called Numbers, and the reason it has that name of Numbers is because it describes a census of all of God's people. So there's nothing inherently sinful about a census. The issue, as with all things, is the motivation behind it. It's the question of why. Why do you want to take a census? And we find out David's motivation in verse 3. It says, Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? You see, there was more going on than just finding out how many fighting men there were in Israel. It was more than just a census. It was a heart issue. Because it says that David delighted in the potential number of fighting men that he had. He wanted to count the size of his army and to use that data to quantify his own power and greatness as a king. In other words, the bigger the army is, the greater and more powerful king he is. So by counting his fighting men, David was saying, I want to put a number to my greatness. I want to quantify it and put a number to my greatness. So David counts because of his pride. He wants to see how many men are in his army so he can feel good about himself, good about his strength and his supremacy in the world. See how powerful I am? Just look at the size of my army. That seems to be David's motivation here. And we hear that, and we think that's maybe foolish or immature. But is it? Is it really? Don't we do the same thing? Let me ask you, how many Facebook friends do you have? How many Twitter or Instagram followers do you have? I know my son often checks the number of views his videos have on his YouTube channel and how many subscribers he has. Or if you don't have social media, how much money is in your bank account? And if there's a lot, doesn't it give you a sense of security and achievement? Or maybe there's just a little and you feel like a failure. What is that? Isn't that putting a number to your value as a person based on some arbitrary thing like the amount of money you have? Or for pastors, the question is always, how big is your church? I tell you what, when I meet people and I tell them that I'm a pastor, the very next thing out of their mouth is, how big is your church? That seems to be the metric that everybody wants to know. What makes a successful pastor or a successful church? How big is it? Let's put a number on it and quantify your greatness as a pastor and your success in ministry or the church's success. There are numerous metrics in our lives that are constantly generating numbers, right? Either behind the scenes or right in front of our faces or on a screen or something, telling us how good we are, telling us how much we're worth, how much value we have because of this number. Or maybe they're telling us the opposite, that we're not very valuable, we're not worth much because your number is small. And when we find our worth, our accomplishment, and our value in these metrics, we are dealing with the sin of pride. 
And that's what David is dealing with here as well. That's, that's his motivation for taking this census. He doesn't really care how many men are in his army as long as it's enough for him to seem like a successful and powerful king. Now, if you recall, and we've talked about this many times, previously David didn't seem to care how many people were in his army. He simply trusted God with the outcome. doesn't matter if I go at them with 10 men or 10,000 because God is still sovereign and he will determine the outcome. David never before seemed to care about how powerful he was, but simply rested in the fact that his God was powerful. But something seems to have changed in his thinking. There's been something going on here where all of a sudden he does care about how much power he has. So it's not the census that is sinful, but the motivation behind the census that is sinful because it exposes David's pride, his sense of self-sufficiency, which, if we're honest, is simply an illusion because David is not that great. So the census begins. But unlike the census that many of us participated in last year, you don't just get online and answer a few questions. They had to go from town to town to count the people a process that took almost 10 months. If you look at verse 8, it says, So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Now, I think that amount of time there that it tells us the census took is significant because it didn't just happen overnight. It took a long time. And the point is that David had almost 10 months to turn from this pride that he was dealing with and call off the whole thing. He had a long time to ruminate over it and think about what he was doing. But instead of turning from his pride, he let it keep going. And after 10 months, the results are in. In verse 9, it says that there are 1.3 million fighting men in Israel. That's a heck of an army. But the numbers didn't bring David the joy and pride that he was expecting. In fact, just the opposite. Look at verse 10. It says, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. You see, David expected to feel powerful and successful when he heard those numbers. But instead, just the opposite happened. He felt convicted, presumably because he realized that numbering his army was an act of selfishness and pride. Presumably, he remembered that it doesn't matter how big your army is as, as long as God is on your side. And we've talked about this before, but this is what makes David a man after God's own heart. No, he's not perfect. He's not a well-behaved little boy. He makes some serious blunders. He falls headfirst into sin sometimes, just like all of us do. But what makes him a man after God's own heart is his desire to turn from that sin when it has been identified in his life. When he is confronted with that sin, he doesn't just you know, wallow in it. He turns from it. He repents of it and follows after his God. And that's what we see again from him here. So David realizes this pride that's been in his heart. He's convicted and he does the right thing. He confesses this sin. He asks God for forgiveness and he receives it. And so he's restored to a right fellowship with God. And I feel like a broken record over these last couple of weeks, but this has been a theme that we've seen in the last half of this book. And that is that sin has consequences. Even when... You know, you sin and you, you, you realize it, you confess it, 
you turn from it, sin still has consequences. Even forgiven sin. We've seen this before in David's life, and we're going to see it here now in just another minute. But imagine a convicted criminal standing before a judge. He's confessed his guilt, and in so doing, he asks his victim for forgiveness, and the victim graciously gives him forgiveness. Will that forgiveness preclude the criminal from serving time? Absolutely not, right? Justice demands that there has to be a consequence, a punishment, even if the sin is forgiven. And again, David is very familiar with this because he's fallen face first into sin. He's turned from it. He's repented, confessed, asked forgiveness. He's received it, been restored to fellowship, but still got to live with the consequence of the sin. And that's another thing that's going to happen here. So here's what God says to David in verse 11. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your, in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So David gets to choose his own judgment. Reminds me of the mother who brought her little boy to church and they went and sat down at the beginning of the service and she opened her purse and showed him what was inside and there was a, a bag of M&Ms and a wooden spoon in that purse and she said, you're going to get one of these at the end of the service. Which one depends on you? You get to choose which you want. Or like those choose-your-own-adventure books. You guys, does anybody remember those choose-your-own? I read those as a kid. It's where you'd, you'd read a, a chapter, and then at the end of the chapter, it said, you know, well, you're standing on a bridge, you know, or on the bank of a river, and you can cross the bridge or you can stay here. If you want to cross the bridge, turn to page 64. If you want to stay here, turn to page 72, and then it would take you uh, down those different roads. The choose-your-own-adventure books, that's like what's going on here, except it's choose-your-own-judgment. Which would you choose? You ever thought about that? God comes to you with these three sets of judgments. You can choose three years of famine, three months of military defeat, or three days of plague. Man, which would you choose? I'm glad that's not a choice that was ever put to me, because that would be a very difficult decision. And it was for David. He didn't know what to choose. So look at verse 14. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great but let me not fall into the hand of man. So you see, David doesn't know which option he wants, but he does know which option he doesn't want. He doesn't want to fall into the hands of his enemies, into the hands of men, because men are notoriously not merciful. But, David reasons, God is merciful, so he would rather fall into the hands of God. Now, you'll notice here that the text doesn't say whether David preferred the famine or the plague, just that God is sovereign over both and that in his mercy, he will be kind to them, even in judgment. That's what David's banking on. So that's what happened. Verse 15, the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. 70,000 Israelite men died as a result of this plague. 
Now, it's estimated that the population of Israel at the time of King David was about 5 million. 70,000 deaths, just to give you some context, uh, according to what, or compared to what we've been going through for the last year, 70,000 deaths means a fatality rate of 1.4% among the entire population of Israel, which is many times higher than what COVID-19 has been for our entire population, which is about 0.15%. But this plague in David's day seems to have only affected males, which means that about 5.3% of all males in Israel died as a result of this plague. 5.3% in three days. <laughs> three days. 70,000 men dead. That's a much more deadly plague than anything we have experienced in the last year. And this is just too much for David to bear. If you look at verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Isn't that what you'd expect a good king to say, a good king to do? That's another reason why David is a man after God's own heart, and he's a picture of Jesus. He's concerned for his people, just as the Lord Jesus is. But David is devastated by these deaths, so much so that he prefers that the judgment would fall upon him and his family. Then verse 18, we read these, this, these verses earlier. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Araunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Araunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Araunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so that the plague may be averted from the people. So David and this guy, Araunah, haggle a little bit about buying the threshing floor. Araunah ultimately just wants to give it to David, but David insists on paying for it because he doesn't want his worship of God to cost him nothing, which is a concept we could have a whole other sermon on just on that one concept there. But the end result is in verse 25. It says, David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So David had originally planned to put Israel's fate in the hands of God because he knew that God is abundant in mercy. So he buys this threshing floor from this guy. He builds an altar. He pleads for mercy and God gives it. If you jump back to verse 16, it says that when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. Now, it's not insignificant that the angel carrying out God's judgment on Israel stops at the exact place where this altar is. That is the place where God's justice and mercy meet, where God's justice ends and his mercy begins. 
God sent this angel to carry out his judgment and justice. And right there at the threshing floor, his mercy is shown as the judgment comes to an end. Now, there's an interesting question about this threshing floor. After all, Gad, this, this prophet, tells David to go and buy that land from this Arauna, the Jebusite guy, and to build an altar on it, and so David does, right? And that is where God's judgment comes to an end and his mercy begins. Now, why did God choose that spot to build an altar? Why did God choose that spot for his justice to end and his mercy to begin? Why not somewhere else? What's so special about this place? After all, it's owned by Arauna, the Jebusite. This guy's not even an Israelite. He was one of the original inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem before Israel ever came in, and he's still there. Well, his people are still there. What's so special about this guy? What's so special about his threshing floor? Well, to answer that question, we need to go kind of back and forth in biblical history. First, let's go back in time. The threshing floor of Arauna was located on Mount Moriah. Does that name ring a bell? It should. It's the same place where Abraham tied his son Isaac to an altar, very similar to the one that David built. And there on that same mountain, more than a thousand years before David was born, God's justice and mercy meet. God's justice in requiring Isaac as a sacrifice and his mercy in providing a ram to take Isaac's place. And then again, more than a thousand years later, here we have David and this plague is coming upon the people and God says, build a threshing floor right there on Mount Moriah and David does and there God's justice and mercy meet as the plague is averted and God's mercy begins. And then just a few decades after David's life, God's justice and mercy will meet again on this same mountain, Mount Moriah, in this exact same place. Because after David dies, of course, his son Solomon becomes king and builds God a temple. And the land he uses to build the temple is the land on Mount Moriah. In fact, it's the exact land that David bought from Arauna, the Jebusite. That's where Solomon builds the temple. And what happens in that temple? God dwells with his people. But how does he dwell with his people? Because he is holy and righteous, and they are not. They are sinful, and righteousness and and sinfulness cannot dwell together. So there must be some way for them to dwell together, and there is, and it's called the spilling of blood, the blood of animals. A sacrificial system is set up. And so animal after animal after animal is killed and killed and killed for years and decades and centuries Because in the book of Hebrews, it says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And so there again, we see a picture of God's justice and mercy coming together and meeting. His justice and requiring that blood be spilt in his mercy by not giving the people what they deserve for their sin. So Solomon builds that temple where God's justice and mercy meet right there on that spot. And then about 400 years after Solomon builds the temple, Israel is carried off into captivity and the temple is destroyed. But after 70 years of captivity, the Israelites begin to return to Israel from captivity. And as they do, they build a second temple. And guess where they build it? (laughs) In that same spot, on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite, where God's justice and mercy 
meet. And once again, it becomes a place where God's people meet with him. And sacrifices are offered to atone for the sins of the people. And then, about 500 years after that, a man named Jesus walks the earth. He's the sinless son of God. He has come to lead a perfect life and to die as the perfect sacrifice that would once and for all time bring God's people into fellowship with him. There'd be no more need for animal sacrifices to stave off God's wrath. Instead, he would bear the full force of God's wrath for sin. He would shoulder God's justice by himself. And in his death, God's mercy then could be given to all those who would believe. They took this man, Jesus, outside of the city of Jerusalem to nail him to a cross. Do you know where that was? Mount Moriah, the place where God's justice and mercy meet. The place where Abraham offered up Isaac, but was given a ram to offer in his place. The same place that David erected an altar to stave off the plague that God sent on Israel. The same place that Solomon built a temple to offer sacrifices to stave off God's wrath and receive his mercy. The same place the Israelites, hundreds of years later, would build a second temple to offer sacrifices to stave off God's God's wrath and receive his mercy. And now, the cross is the symbol of the place where God's justice and mercy meet. For on that cross, the full force of God's wrath against sin fell upon Jesus. And on that cross, God's mercy and forgiveness was extended to all who who would receive it by faith. The cross, much like the one that's right behind me, is a horrible symbol of the consequence of sin, a symbol of ultimate justice. And it reminds us, sin has consequences. But simultaneously, it is a symbol of mercy and forgiveness that through our faith in the one who died on that cross, we can have eternal life. And did you catch what God told that angel as he was about to destroy Jerusalem? He said to that angel, withdraw your hand, it is enough. My justice is satisfied. My mercy begins. What did Jesus say when he hung on the cross, receiving the justice, the full weight of God's wrath for sin? It is finished. And God's justice and mercy meet on that cross. And so now people like David can approach God, even sinful, because God's justice and mercy have met on Mount Moriah. Even me, even you, who like David have fallen face first into sin time after time after time, and every time those who are in Christ, who know the value of that cross, come back to the place where justice and mercy meet, to the cross, to bring our sin to him, to bring our failures to him, to that place where God's justice and mercy meet. If you have never been there, to that place, maybe you read about David in the Bible and you think, man, this guy was a sinner, he don't have nothing on me. That's oftentimes the way I feel when I read about 
the people we read about in the Bible. Even still, though, you can come. You can come to this place. God invites you to come to this place where his justice and his mercy meet because he has paid for your sin and he will apply that payment to your account so that you and David and me and anybody who would come can stand before him not guilty. Not guilty of sin, but in fact we have then the righteousness that Jesus earned. That can be yours. Invite you to come to the place where justice and mercy meet. Come to the cross and find God's mercy there. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the testimony of the cross, what it simultaneously tells us about your judgment and about your mercy and grace. Lord, we thank you for that testimony. We thank you for that place where we can come as sinners, being open and honest about our struggles and our pride and everything else that might plague us or hinder us from following you. For Lord, you are a God who loves to forgive sin. You love to meet people at the cross. Lord, meet us there this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.